Kia and welcome. I'm Boris Lamont and you're listening to the New Zealand Wine Podcast. In this episode, we're speaking with the General Manager of Framingham Wines, Tom Troloff. Framingham have been growing grapes in Marlborough at the top of the South Island for some time now and producing some really interesting varietals. So right now, let's go have a chat with Tom. Hi, Tom. G'day, Boris. How are you? Welcome along. Good to have you here. It's nice to be here. So where did your journey start? My journey? Well, in Ponsonby, no. <laughs> Today, yes. <laughs> That's where we had lunch. Um, my journey. Um, I'm, a, I'm a South Island boy, I suppose. Um, well, I am a South Island boy. Born, uh, born in Christchurch, but uh, grew up in, in Marlborough, mm-hmm. on the uh, Kaikoura coast, actually, was my home. Grew up to a uh, sheep and beef farming family. My, my parents were sheep and beef farmers in the 70s and 80s, so um, I've got a lot of fond memories of uh, chasing woolly things around the hills. But um, yeah, that's where I started. Uh, educated down in Christchurch, you know, spent a lot of my formative teenage years down there, university down there. Lincoln University it was, wasn't what, it? What did, what did you study? I actually studied um, uh, Bachelor of Commerce. Mm-hmm. Uh, thought I was going to do economics, um, but then it got really difficult, so I changed to marketing um, and finished here with a Bachelor of Commerce in Marketing. I actually felt that was a bit cheeky and went back and did a, a, a Master's of Business Administration after that, actually, at right. uh, Massey University. So sort of uh, probably had a bit too much fun at Lincoln. To take it too seriously, right? Yeah. Okay, thought you, thought you but, um, finished it off properly. Yeah, I went and finished it off properly later. But no, um, so that was a great, great start to my life. I, I started actually um, got into my working career in Christchurch. Worked for um, the Stewart family at PDL. Some of you will have light switches still with PDL on them. PDL Electronics and Electrics, they were right. Yep, did a graduate course out of there for about uh, four years. And that took me all over the country and also uh, to Europe. So I ended up um, in Germany uh, for a couple of years in Germany in the in the in the uh, 97, 98, which was good fun. Uh, we were importing New Zealand products, electrical products, and distributing them throughout Europe, which was uh, incredibly exciting to be leading leading edge like that. Right. And uh, being on those international trade shows, showing off what New Zealand could do in an intellectual sense was really something. And then um, my then girlfriend had moved to London. So uh, London had quite a strong pull for me at that stage. So I, um, I said goodbye to the Stuart family and went off to London for a couple of years uh, and got into financial accounting, oh, of all things, okay. which was nothing like PDL days. It was... Um, <laughs> paid well <laughs> it allowed for a certain lifestyle yes let's just put it that way and um it was in london um that uh i actually got tragic news that my father had been struck with down with cancer mm. with lymphoma which was um which was the sort of the end to the the big oe so my then girlfriend still now my wife um we came home quite promptly i did a little bit of a side trip through africa and asia but came home and decided to settle in Wellington because my folks were in Marlborough, obviously. Um, by this stage, they'd, interestingly, they'd diversified off the sheep and beef farm and, and planted grapes. Okay. So it was sort of a, a purposeful. We thought, oh, we'll, we'll settle in Wellington. We can be close to Dad and um, make regular trips back there. Um, so that was working out all right. I actually got into sort of financial services in Wellington, insurance and stuff like that, which... 
it was a means to an end, a bit like the um, financial accounting in, in London. It wasn't really my, where my heart was, but um, it was it was close to Dad. So I did that for a while, and with that, um, we moved to Auckland. And uh, Kirsty and I, my wife and I, were both both sort of living in Ponsonby. She was in the bank, and I was in the insurance company. And it was during those years that my father passed away, and. Um, I suppose we we got married, we'd, we'd had um, our first child, and you, and you started to look at what life was all about. Um, we were regularly going back to Marlborough because of my mum and obviously where Dad was. And uh, I started to observe my brothers and sisters who all lived down there. And, um, you know, growing up in Marlborough, it was really quite a barren... Um, it wasn't a particularly wealthy area. It, it, it was a, a sort of a poor man's version of Canterbury I suppose the sheep and beef you know was a tough tough gig but what I'd seen through my life was that this thing called the wine industry was really changing the face of Marlborough it was um it was not just physically changing the the environment obviously there's grapes going in the ground but it was changing the type of person that lived there there was a there was a younger crew of people coming in there was this worldly outward looking feel about the place um, people that were traveling from Marlborough were no longer just going to Canterbury to sell their sheep or, or, or their beef they were traveling to Europe to sell their wine and it was a really exciting thing to be part of so I was sitting in Ponsonby one night and I said to Kirsty I think I want to move out of Auckland and um, we were only in our early 30s we were probably 33 and um, she said why I said well you know I'm not into what we're doing and I can sort of see where we're going we're gonna you know we'll, we'll do well we'll have to buy a bigger house and get a bigger mortgage and move to you know a slightly more expensive suburb and then maybe one day we can hopefully you know have a section at cook's beach or something really exciting like that and i said that's just not not what i'm into and i'm not bashing auckland i mean auckland's a lovely place but but it was just that moment and she was also from a rural background so she sort of have said empathy for my situation and i said let's let's go down to marlborough and see if we can make it work and she said, "Well, what are we? You know, what are we going to do down there?" And I said, "Well, I don't know. We'll just work it out." So it was a big, it was a big change for us. And with a little baby um, and another one on the way, we got in the Mitzi and we headed south and um, arrived down in Marlborough with not a clue what we were going to do. Um, I ended up um, applying for a local job, which was there's a Marlborough Wine Growers Association down there, which um, basically is a levy funded uh, group that's responsible for marketing Marlborough as a region. Um, it runs the lights of the Marlborough Wine and Food Festival, but it also hosts a lot of international visitors. And so I applied for that job and uh, I got it. <laughs> so that was my first step back into Marlborough, uh, working for, for the entire industry, which was kind of mind-blowing mm. uh, for, for me. Um, but my mother was a grape grower and um, I'd helped her plant grapes. Her and dad plant grapes in the, in the early 80s. So I kind of knew about grapes and I'd worked in grapes during the holidays so I kind of knew about bud rubbing and wire lifting and all the sort of technical stuff that goes with grapes so it wasn't totally foreign to me. I had a brother growing grapes, had a sister growing grapes so I felt like I knew the region quite well and I was a local at heart so I knew a few of the personalities. So I got into that and I quite enjoyed it um, actually. Marlborough, you know, the same thing about the wine industry, you step out of like the insurance industry or the banking industry and nothing against people that work in those sectors but there's a certain type of person that gets drawn into the wine sector and they are, um, they're not necessarily in it for the money. Um, they're in it for the love of the product, uh, the culture. And I just 
suddenly found myself immersed in this sort of scene of people that were um, just, everyone was a good sort and everyone was trying to help each other. Um, we were young, we still are a young industry, but everyone was trying to help each other get established and get overseas and, and we'd travel a lot together. So, you know, you go to the likes of, a, you know, the London International Wine Show and I hadn't been back to a wine show since I'd been um, in Germany with the with the PDL, with the electronics, and to be back at another wine show surrounded by people all trying to achieve something great for New Zealand, it was really exciting, and I knew this is exactly what I wanted to do, and this is where my heart was. So um, it was great to be back in Marlborough. Obviously, we had our second, uh, sorry, our third child. I'd better not forget that. So we had three children, and um, we were raising children, and we'd sold our house in Ponsonby, um, and this was an O, what year was that? Uh, just before the crash, so 07. We'd sold it really well. Um, and we'd gone and bought um, an eight hectare vineyard with sort of sort of switched out of Ponsonby House for an eight hectare vineyard in, in uh, the middle of Rapara, which was quite a nice growing region. And we built this, this house on it. So we sort of thought we were living the dream. Um, interestingly, well, we were for those first couple of years, but then if, if you followed the wine industry closely in 08, um, Marlborough's total crop um, increased by 60%. Just in one year, our total oh. intake went up 60%. That was driven off a lot of um, speculative planting. A lot of people were very excited about the industry. It was an exciting industry. It still is an exciting industry, but it was probably more sensible now. Back then, we had the New Zealand cricket team investing off portfolio investment you know they had sight unseen they'd be buying tranches of land and things like that it was it was quite a heady days and so we we suddenly saw this um oversupply hit the market coupled with the the gfc arrived at exactly the same time and uh, you know a good chunk of new zealand's wine you know 80 percent 90 percent goes offshore and when the world uh decides there's you know there's no appetite for it and you've just increased your production by 60 percent it was really tough times so Kirsty and I, you know, we'd established our vineyard, we'd spent all this money on this house, and then suddenly we found ourselves in quite difficult financial times. And that was a really big wake-up. You know, you can sit in these big corporates, you know, the checks keep coming in, but to suddenly be out there and the reality of, you know, supply and demand and all those things kicked home. So those were, those were tough years. You know, I remember talking to the neighbour who was another grape grower, and, and I said, have you been here before, Ian? And he goes, yeah, Tom, we've been here before, mate. You've just got to eat a bit more baked beans, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Yeah, I'm not used <laughs> to that. I'm, I'm used to having lattes in Ponsonby Road. I'm not used to eating baked beans. And uh, so, we, so, so were you producing yeah. then under your own label? Or? Uh, no, and, and to this day I still don't. Um, so after two years of um, of uh, uh, Y Marlborough, I, well, I'll address your question first. So in Marlborough, about half of the vineyards that you see when you fly in are owned by mum and dad's private investors. And those, those growers, as we call them, grape growers, there's about 500 of them in the valley. Um, they will grow grapes like a farmer will grow sheep, and they will supply those grapes to wine companies. So it's a very important part of the supply chain for, for the wine companies. Wine companies don't want all that capital tied up in, um, in land and, and productive area. They need that capital for marketing, to grow their businesses. You know, and so they rely on... Um, on growers and so Kirsty and I were growers and we were growers um, for Villa Maria we actually bought the land from Villa Maria and I'm still a grower for Villa Maria to mm -hmm. this day mm -hmm. what what um, varieties were you uh, just Sauvignon Blanc mm -hmm. uh, Sauvignon Blanc is the go-to variety as a grower it's relatively easy to grow I shouldn't say easy but it's relatively um, rewarding as a grower um, it's one of those grapes that um, 
that wine companies like to outsource. You know, the, the wine companies tend to specialize in things that take a little bit more hands-on um, technique and so forth. So, so it's a good grower's grape, and that's what's demanded. So that was fine. So um, you're two years into Wine Marlborough, did a couple of wine festivals. I found the Wine Marlborough thing was fun, but it's very political. I mean, you've got to represent everybody in the industry, and that became not challenging, but it wasn't really what I wanted to do. I like commerce, I like businesses, I like trying to build something up. And so I heard you know, through the grapevine that um, Framingham Wines had been sold um, and that the new owners who were Europeans were looking for someone to run it and I scurried around and found out who they were. So it's a lovely family from Portugal. They've been making wine since the 40s um, and the grandchildren are running the company and they had bought this company. And so I rang, um, got on the phone to this guy, Salvador, and said, Salvador, you know, you need someone down in Marlborough. I'm your man. And he said, oh, I don't know about that. You know, who are you? And, and so long story short is um, he came down after I'd had some interviews with a recruitment agency and, and hired me. Right, okay. And Framingham had been running as Framingham? Well, Framingham, talking about Framingham now, God, that's a lot about me. So Framingham was really started back in the 80s. Well, it was started in the 80s with a guy called Rex Brooke-Taylor and his wife PJ. Um, they were, they were, he was from Wellington. He was an engineer from Wellington, and I believe PJ was a school teacher. And they... Um, had often spent weekends in Marlborough because you know, everyone knows what Wellington's weather's like and Marlborough has quite a nice climate and it's only just there. And so they were coming over regularly um, and they'd bought some dirt in the late 70s with the view of planting grapes. And so they got into planting grapes in 1981. They planted uh, Riesling uh, vines. And everyone goes, Riesling, that's quite weird, isn't it? Because everything's Sauvignon Blanc, because a good chunk of Sauvignon Blanc in Marlborough. And I said, well, it's not, because in the 70s and early 80s, we um, were protected as a wine industry, so we didn't have uh, any free trade agreements, within, especially with Australia. So New Zealand was new to wine, and so the varieties that were planted were Mulaturgal and uh, Riesling. And the main reason those varieties were planted was because they cropped quite heavily, and they provided for good sweet box wine, white wine, the likes of Blenheimer, um, those sorts of, uh, my parents used to have a box of white in the fridge and a box of red on top of the fridge and uh, three litre boxes of wine were, were all the go in the early, in the late 70s, early 80s and and so we were producing wines, the industry was producing wines for box and so those varieties were good for that. What was interesting about Rex though is he had the foresight because phylloxera, which is the disease which attacks the roots of the vines and ultimately kills them had not arrived in New Zealand in the um, early 80s. But he knew that one day it would. So he took, had the foresight to plant uh, Riesling vines with grafted rootstock, with American rootstock, which stops the disease. Um, and he paid more for his vines back then. And he told me, you know, it was a big decision for them. But he knew that it would happen. And so um, it was only five years later that Phylloxfer arrived in, in the mid-80s in Marlborough. And these Riesling vines that Rex and PJ had planted did not have to get pulled out of the ground because they were disease resistant. And those are the reasoning vines that still um, surround oh. the Framingham estate. Okay. Yep. Now, the reasoning vines, because of that, uh, are old. Um, they don't, don't produce quite as much vigor as they used to. They certainly don't produce the crops that they used to. But what they produce is very, very interesting material. You know, more depth of flavor, more characteristic. It's a bit like an older person. We always say, you know, a young person's full of vigor and full of bullshit. When you get a bit older, you say less, but what you do say is worth listening to, you know. And so if you think about that as far as a vine. 
So that's why Framingham, so so Rex and PJ were a bit like Kirsty and I, they, they grew grapes for um, the likes of Corbin's Grove Mill uh, through the early 80s. And it was through that process that um, the winemaker at Grove Mill, um, Dave Pierce, was making um, their wine. And, and Dave rang them one day and said, Rex, look, I'm really loving uh, the fruit you're providing us with. What's your vineyard called? Because we really want to acknowledge your vineyard on the back of our um, Grove Mill Riesling bottle. I think this is about 1985, 84, 85. And um, good old Rex, you know, like a lot of Kiwis, they think, you know, the, the, uh, things from England are quite posh, you know. And so he looked quickly into well, into his history and found out that his ancestral home was a place called Framingham in Norwich, UK. And so he thought that sounded sounded pretty top shelf. So he went back and said, oh, Dave, it's Framingham. And uh, Dave goes, oh, great. And so he put <laughs> Framingham wines, uh, nice. Framingham vineyards on the back of the, the first bottle, of, or one of the first bottles of Riesling that we found that name on. We've still got some of them in the cellar. Um, fast forward a few years, um, Rex was enjoying this, and he said to Dave, can you make me some wine out of my own grapes that I can just drink at home? And so Dave did that. And uh, Rex regularly had these Rieslings sitting at home. He actually had an underground cellar in his little cottage. And he had Kevin Judd. Now, Kevin Judd's the, uh, of grey wacky fame now, but Kevin was the winemaker for many years at, at Cloudy Bay. And Kevin and, and Rex were mates. And Kevin came around for dinner at, at, at Rex's place. And he said, I'll try this wine. And he, and he started pouring it. And Kevin goes, this is really good, Rex. What is this? You know, he goes, oh, this is this is my uh, Framingham. Uh, and he goes, oh, it's at the vineyard. He goes, yeah. He says, mate, this is you, this is far too good to be just be grower fruit. You know, you should really start your own label. This 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 is worth it. And so um, so that was what really made Rex think that he'd have a go of it. And so in '94, so he um, he did it. He produced a, a Riesling under the. I think he produced two Rieslings in that year. I found another one the other day. So. A, a drier style and an off dry style um, in 94 and uh, took them to market and uh, Rex built that up and his first actually Carb Members Wines which is now New Zealand Wine Society was the first distributor that Rex had globally which was here in Auckland and we still distribute them with, with them today and um, and then Rex you know, he's an engineer you know he got very excited he, he found an overseas investor I think from Austria who was into eyewear or something something unrelated but but with plenty of money, which you always need. And um, he developed up a thousand ton crush winery. He developed up vineyards and purchased land to produce a thousand tons of, of wine, which in, you know, in layman's terms, that's uh, roughly a hundred thousand cases of wine. That's a significant amount. We still don't make that today, but we have a winery that's capable of it. Um, and he built this up and, and it was going well, but um, he, I think it was around that time that it dawned on him, you know, to do this properly, I'm going to have to sell this wine. I mean, growing the stuff and making it you know it's not easy but it's relatively easy compared to finding all those markets so he um went for a global search for partners and um in the end sold the company um he sold it to Orlando Wyndham in, in in Australia and then through a series of mergers um it ended up actually for a very short time we were in the hands of Puna Ricard and um and then it was sold back into private ownership with the with the European family that I mentioned. So, right, it's a hell of a story. But um, I well, think and that that's that's the time when it's a, that's when your part. That's when I started. Yep. Yeah. So yep. that's that, that was in two thousand seven, late two thousand seven. I stepped into the to the shoes of running the place, and um, I suppose when I picked it up, it was it was kind of broken. It, it had had 
Rex's input. Then it sort of had a couple of owners that had sort of been enthusiastic for a moment and then sort of forgotten about it. But there's one thing that had stuck with us, and that's our winemaker, um, Dr. Andrew Headley. He he was an Englishman who came out to New Zealand um, about 20 years ago um, for a better life. Um, he was a doctor of organic chemistry. He'd worked in the likes of um, industrial chemical you know, manufacturing, um, Formica, places like this, nothing really wine-related, but he had a brain, a great brain, and he had a, had a really interest in wine, and particularly Rieslings, because his old man used to take him walking through the Austrian Alps, and, and they used to enjoy those uh, cooler climate um, whites, and, and Germanic Rieslings, the Moselles, and so forth. So he had a, he had a love of Riesling. So he'd come out, he'd, he'd sort of self-taught himself how to make wine. He'd, he'd worked in a lot of labs in the larger wine companies. And then in, uh, I want to say, so 18 years ago, 2004, must have been, he um, saw the job of assistant winemaker come up at Framingham. Um, and that was Ant Moore was the, was the winemaker at that time. Ant went off to Spy Valley almost immediately. And Andrew took on the role of head winemaker at Framingham. And so Andrew now, 18 years later, he's still there. He's traded, he's, he's, he's made wine through numerous owners. Um, but I'd like to think the last 10 years, he's really um, come into his own because the distractions are gone. He's got everybody's full support. Um, he's incredibly well respected. Um, he's one of the most knowledgeable wine people I know. Um, I mean, knowledgeable as in global knowledge of wine. And, um, you know, he's been allowed at Framingham to really flourish um, we, when I arrived, you know, we, we sort of looked at the company and said, you know, what is this all about? What do we stand for? And we, we talked about the Rieslings and we talked about the different varieties and how we just don't really do things like most Marlborough wineries. Um, we do um, sort of step out away from the mainstream. And so rather than sort of say, well, let's conform, we said, well, let's not. And so um, Andrew, you know, He's been making he he's been making these rieslings, these crazy rieslings, but also you know I've got a Sauvignon Blanc there in front of you. you know, he started uh, playing with wild fermentation and oak treatment and um, you know, significant lees contact. You know, over twelve years ago, you know, so these things that a lot of um, people are bringing to the wines now to sort of differentiate them and 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 take them out of the mainstream or or take them away from maybe the the, main, the sort of the supermarket wines. He was thinking about that years ago, and and is really perfecting it now. And and I think that's that's cool. We also gave him um, the opportunity to make a whole new range um, because Andrew's one of those guys that he said I'm too tired and too cynical and too old now to make my own label. And we said, well, let's do another one, and you can do all the things you wanted to do in that. So the F series, which is still a Framingham product, is basically where he's allowed to go and do whatever he likes and the outcome of that is just endless um, fun and enjoyment. Um, Andrew made nine Rieslings for example <laughs> last last season, last vintage from the one estate. Wow. Um, he did the entire Praticat system except for the ice wine for those Riesling lovers um, and I think it's that expression that we allow him to have. I mean he also imports wine himself, um, crazy wines from all over the world, stuff that no one's ever heard of or seen but he he's so interested in the subject matter that i think that's why we get the most out of him because we don't try and stop that we try and feed that 
Right. And uh, yeah, it's been wonderful to watch. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you obviously you're having he's doing quite a few different things, and you know, from year to year, maybe trying new things. I mean, have you got some yeah. um, sort of staples as well that you? Well, yeah. Obviously, the Framingham. We've got to have the engine room. I, I think that's the Sauvignon Blanc in front of you. The Framingham Sauvignon Blanc that goes globally. Um, that goes to 48 plus markets. It's what the world wants is Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc. I mean, 90% of what's exported from this country of ours is Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc. So it's the calling card of the nation. Um, so we have to do that and do that well, which he does. Um, but uh, apart from that, so, so the Pinot's the sort of the, the right-hand man or woman to that wine. So the Pinot's the second, it's the New Zealand's white. So Pinot Noir is very important. Um, and then we drop into classic Riesling in the Framingham range, which is sort of our third bow, third uh, arrow in the, in the quiver or whatever. And then um, uh, Pinot Gris. So those are sort of very important wines. Uh, we also do a Chardonnay. Um, we do other styles of Riesling, but those sort of are, are the core. Yeah. And, and are they they all out of uh, Marlborough? Or all out of Marlborough. Yeah. All out of the Wairau Valley. We, we um, yeah. Our home was the Wairau. I mean, for those of you that know, there's obviously the Awateri. There's the Southern Valleys and then there's the uh, the White Owl. And the White Owl is our home. So we tend to stick, well, we do stick to that valley. Slightly warmer valley, uh, slightly more sheltered from those southerly weather patterns. So the wines, uh, the flavour profiles are slightly riper. Um, whereas over the hill you get um, maybe a longer hang time, slightly more austere, steely wines. But the horses for courses, there's nothing better or worse. They're just different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, th- I think that's that's where we got to. Um, you know, I have to drop it in because you know Bridget told me to. But you know, to be recognised uh, this year by um, Bob Campbell and Huon Hook as the winery of the year, you know, out of 160 odd wineries to take that place. You know, that's that's all about Andrew, Dr. Headley, and what he's done for the company. I think, you know, we've been doing it well now for a consistent amount of time, and it's actually quite hard to do it well consistently, especially. The last couple of vintages have been incredibly challenging. Climate change is a thing. It's here. And, um, you know, Andrew's ability to handle botrytis, which is the rot we get in, in humid, wet conditions, and his lack of fear. I mean, he knows how to deal with it and to make great things out of it. So he's not afraid. And I think um, that's really, you know, testament to him. Yeah, yeah. And so you've talked about um, his playing with the, with the Riesling. Is there anything else that's um, sort of coming on the horizon? <laughs> he's, he's always playing. You know, yeah. I, I'm continually, um, I should say shocked, but I'm not because he does it so often that it's, it's, I, I laugh. But, you know, we're, we're into our second season of a uh, pet nat, um, which is, uh, you know, the, the petite naturelle. Um, we're doing a vin gris this year, which is obviously a white wine made out of Pinot Noir grapes. Um I'm sure he's got a couple of other things. I know there's a port hidden out the back of right. the winery somewhere. <laughs> I'm still trying to find that one. Yeah. Uh, he, he loves to make his Kirschwasser. So he makes, um, not that that'll come out under a Framingham label. In fact, it won't come out under any label. <laughs> It'll be consumed within probably the four walls of the winery. But um, yeah, he's always loving to experiment and take yeah. us further. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, very cool. Very yeah. good. Good. Well, um, we finish up on the question if <laughs> you could have uh, any glass of wine with anyone. Uh, living dead or maybe hasn't yet existed um who would that be what wine would it be yeah. and maybe where would it be yeah i know you're gonna ask that so yeah it's gonna be quite a tough question to answer because i've already talked about him <laughs> but yeah be the old man right yeah um when we planted grapes all those years ago 
uh, he never saw any of this. You know, he never saw where, where I got to with my wine career. And uh, so it'd be, you make me cry. Um, it'd be in the Marlborough Sounds. Nice, yeah. Out in the boat. And right. it'd probably be a bottle of, uh, probably Sauvignon Blanc, just because I think he'd be impressed at where we've managed to bring it to, you know? Yeah, yeah. From what he was growing back in the 80s to the interesting textural wine that we've got today. Yeah, he'd, yeah. he'd appreciate Sorry, some progress there. No, that's Boris, great. you're making me well <laughs> up here. Mm. <laughs> that's very cool. No, that's lovely. Excellent. Well, thanks, Tom. I appreciate you coming in. Oh, I feel like I've talked a lot. No, no, that's fantastic. Well, that's what we wanted. <laughs> that's great. So, yeah, thanks again. And um, we look forward to um, what else might be popping out in the near future. Good. Keep an eye out for us. Great. Thanks. Cheers. Bye now. We've been speaking with Tom Trolov, the General Manager of Framing and Wines in Marlborough at the top of the South Island, New Zealand. If you'd like to find out more about Framingham, you can go to framingham.co.nz and also be sure to check out some of the other New Zealand wine podcasts, either on our website or by looking them up in your podcast app. And be sure to also check out some of the other podcasts in the podcast.nz stable. You can also find us on Instagram under NZ Wine Podcast, and we look forward to your company again very shortly. Hey, Konomai, bye for now.